0: Log Talk Radio
1: Basel's coming in. She's one of the founders of Abolition two thousand. Okay, Bob's back. Good. So let's not worry too much about the video, okay?
2: Um well, let's make sure we we got some sound.
1: All right, Bob. Can you talk? Yeah. Yes, we hear you.
3: Okay, best I can do.
1: Then let's not worry about the video. As long as we can yeah, have the audio, let's,
3: let's just move on. We should be all, all right.
2: Good. All right, we're
1: gonna, but Jonah, Let's give it uh, two more minutes. Right. We have 17 participants. Others will be coming on, but I want to start it quickly because we're going to be recording and doing it a live okay. on Facebook. So on YouTube.
4: This meeting is being recorded.
1: All right, Jonah, if you'd like to start, we can start now.
2: Okay. Um, Welcome everyone. Uh, My name is Jonah Blaustein. I'm with the Hiroshima Nagasaki Peace Committee. And um, tonight our, program is a discussion entitled Nuclear Imperialism. Um, We have um, uh, John Steinbach and Bob Brown here to lead this discussion. Um, uh, I haven't met uh, Bob before today. And um, uh, we're we're honored to have him here to, um, to participate in this discussion. And um, from, um, from the, um, the short bio about, uh, let me just read part of this. Uh, um, Bob Brown will celebrate 50 year, 58 years of work, study, and struggle in the student and youth, human and civil rights, African liberation, black power, and pan-African socialist, anti-war, and anti-draft, anti-Zionist, and anti-repression movements in August 2021. He was a member of the Chicago chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality in 19, from 1963 to 68, director of the Midwest Office of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, 67 to 68, and co-founder of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party nineteen
4: sixty
2: eight. Um he has worked with and supported hundreds of progressive and revolutionary movements, organizations and governments in every corner of Africa, the African diaspora and the world. He's the um, director of um, Pan African Week and an organizer for Tonight the Bob revolutionary Brown Revolutionary Party.
5: Um,
2: so um, take away uh, Move all ears. And if the rest of you, if you can mute, mute your your microphone, uh,
5: we're
1: that. getting some um,
2: uh, some crosstalk.
1: All right, I'm going to start muting some people. All right, Bob?
2: Yes,
3: how are you? Good. Are we ready? Yeah. We are. You Let me are first to mute
4: or unmute yourself by pressing star. Let me six.
3: say who I am. I'm a Pan-Africanist, an internationalist, a socialist, a revolutionary, an incroonist, an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. I'd to thank John Steinbach and the Hiroshima-Nagasaki Peace Committee in the National Capital Area for organizing this Zoom meeting and for inviting me to participate. We first want to apologize to John because we misspelled his name on our party website. An error. We have corrected that error once it was brought to our attention. The All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, and I have worked with John and the Peace Committee on a wide range of issues over the past three or four decades, including the recent commemoration of Indigenous Peoples Day here in Washington, D.C., Cornel Benjamin, one of our cadres, and we have hosted several receptions for delegations of atomic bomb survivors when we visited Washington, D.C. Permit me to also thank the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, G.C., for enabling and empowering me to be here tonight. We inherit and continue, though not necessarily exclusively, the revolutionary theory and practice of the Convention People's Party of Ghana during the leadership of Kwame Nkrumah, the Democratic Party of Guinea during the leadership of Ahmed Sekou Toure, the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania which some people call South Africa, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and the Black Panther Movement Slash Party for the leadership of Kwame Ture Stokely Carmichael. We have been and are allied to a host of progressive and revolutionary movements and organizations in Africa, the African diaspora, and the world. Since the late 1960s, we have had intermittent contact with several forces in Japan during SNS, our SNCC era, our Black Panther era. Some of them include Zengakaren, My Japan League of Students and Government Associations, Jensuiko, Japan Council Against Atomic and Hydrogen Bombs, the Japanese Committee for the Reunification of Korea, and the Burakumin, the Untouchables of Japan. We seek to reestablish them, if possible, establish contact, if possible, with them, and the movement for the occupation of Okinawa. I have been asked to make some brief remarks tonight on three subjects. One, the disarmament demonstration that was held at the United Nations on June 12, 1982. Two, the role that imperialism, colonialism, and neocolonialism, racism, apartheid, and Zionism played and continues to play in the mining of uranium. The deployment and development of nuclear weapons, especially as you deployed against Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the larger nuclear arms race. And three, the role that African people in Africa and the African diaspora have played and should play in the anti-war, anti-nuke, peace, solidarity and related movements. I have used a number of sources for the facts outlined in this presentation, including Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. Let me honestly declare that the errors made in this presentation are mine only. I will not compromise my principles or the truth, but I will attempt to correct all errors. Task number one, reflections on three barricades that changed the movement and my life. On June 12, 1982, one million people gathered at the United Nations Plaza in New York during the second UN special session on disarmament. We marched for nuclear disarmament and human needs, and for peace and justice to Central Park. We participated in the largest anti-nuke and peace rally in the United States to that date. It was a movement changer. Maria Kodate and I, representing the All African People's Revolutionary Party, were two in that million at that barricade. Marina also represented the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. We were joined by a busload of AAPRP members, supporters, and allies from Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, Maryland, and by hundreds of other members, supporters, and allies from cities across North America. Many of them are still active in the movement today. Marina was on the New York staff of the June 12 Disarmament Committee. She worked closely with the staff of the New York chapter for the Mobilization for Survival and the World Resistance League, especially Norma Becker and Vivian Stromberg. She also worked with the African-American Coordinating Committee, the Third World Progressive People's Coalition, and the Harlem and Brooklyn Contingents, which were co-led by Reverend Herbert Daughtry, Ed two-way UCI and the Na- National Black United Front, Joe Maceriki and the Black Veterans for Peace, Jim Horton, Mary Hester Bailey, and Harlem Fightback, and a host of other organizations. We've invited those who can to join us at this event tonight. I served as a member of the 48-person national staff of the June 12th Disarmament Committee. I worked closely with the national staff of the Mobilization for Survival and the World Sisters League. Including Dave Gillinger, Leslie Kibben, Matt Meyer, and others. I helped facilitate third Earth world outreach with Andrea Kahneman of the Puerto Rican Socialist Party. The June 12th disarmament demonstration was my first large protest. Nineteen years after I participated and the school boycott of October 22, 1963, when 250,000 African students, under the coordination of Larry Landry Snick, and Bob Lucas of Corp, boycotted the Chicago public school system for one day. That boycott changed my life. And the life of African people in Chirac not permanently and certainly not enough. Shah Rakh is still on fire and violence is institutionalized pandemic and out of control. For several months, through October 15, 1995, I served as an advisor to Minister Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam the National Court Data Logistics and Operations for the 1.2 million man march, and the National Field Director of a 3 million person stay at home campaign. I was also an observer at the 1 million women march on October 25, 1997. It was organized and led by Empress Philemon Chi. These two manifestations were and remain the largest African protest rallies in the United States and the largest general strikes. They were also movement changes, albeit not enough. Task number two, notes on the sources of uranium and the development of the atomic bomb. "Quote something no as quid ex Africa," cried the Roman Proconsul, and he voiced the verdict of forty centuries. W. B. Du Bois wrote in the African Roots of War, which was published in the Atlantic Monthly Magazine in 1915. Yet there are those who would write world history and leave this most marvelous out this most marvelous of continents, end of quote. Particularly today, men, and I add, and women, women, assume that Africa lies far afield from the centuries of our burning social problems and especially from our present problem of world war. In a very real sense, that has continued. Africa is the prime cause of this terrible overturning of civilization, which we have lived to see. And these words seek to show how, in the dark continent, are hidden the roots, not simply of war today, but of the menace of wars tomorrow, end of quote. Racism, racial and ethnic discrimination, xenophobia and related intolerance, imperialism and colonialism, apartheid, segregation, Zionism and neocolonialism are the causes and byproducts of the greatest theft of land, labor, and lives the world has ever seen. This millennial and generational theft intensifies today in every corner of Africa, the African diaspora, and the world. This theft was and is racist, sexist, and agents. Wars have been waged and continue to be waged. Our lives have been and continue to be taken for rubber and copper, oil and gas, cobalt and cocaine, uranium, and other mineral, animal, agricultural, water, sun, and wind resources, and for labor markets and bases. Permit me to offer some history of the development and deployment of the atomic bomb and its connection to racism, imperialism, and colonialism and to neo-colonialism today. Sources of uranium have been recorded since 79 B.C. in the Roman Empire and since 1565 in Europe. Its discovery was announced in Berlin on September 24, 1789. It was discovered in the United States in 1871. And 50 tons of high-grade oil was mined on indigenous land in Utah and Colorado by 1895. A mine was opened for production in England in 1873. And 175 tons of oil was produced by 1900. The Congo. The Sinkalabwe deposit in the Belgian Congo, now Democratic Republic of the Congo, was discovered in 1913 and mining began in 1921. It had the richest grade of ore and the largest tonnage of uranium in the world. That all was under the control of Union Minière de Haute Katanga, which was owned by Société Générale and the Belgian government. The Congo was a Belgian colony from 1875 to 1960. King Leopold II controlled it through the International African Association from 1876 to 1879. It was renamed the International Association of the Congo, from 1879 to 1885. The 14 Nation Berlin Conference of 1884 remained the Congo Free State. It was formally annexed by King Baudouin, won as the Belgian Congo on November 15, 1908. It won independence on July 5, 1960, under the leadership of Patrice Lumumba. It has been an Anglo-American and Belgian neo-colony for the last 61 years. During World War I, a joint Anglo-Belgian force invaded and occupied German East Africa, now called Tanzania, during the East African campaign. In 1917, the Army of the Belgian Congo Twenty-five thousand white men and more than two hundred and sixty thousand native bearers, bearers, in quotes, controlled one third of German East Africa. After the war, the Treaty of Versailles forced Germany to cede control of the western section of the former German East Africa to Belgium. On October twenty nineteen. 24, Rwanda, Rwanda, Maninde, Rwanda, and Burundi became a Belgian League of Nations mandate territory. The importance of Congolese rubber fell from 77% of exports to 15% as British colonies in Southeast Asia began to farm rubber. The mining industry became a major player. Copper and cobalt in Katango, diamonds in Kasai, gold in Ituri. It continues to be a major player today. Copper mining and production in Katanga province by Union Memory. So it from nine hundred and ninety seven tons in nineteen eleven to twenty seven thousand four hundred and sixty two tons in nineteen seventeen and then fell off to nineteen thousand tons in nineteen twenty. 1920. In nineteen twenty six, Katanga exported more than eighty thousand tons of copper ore. A large part of it was processing in her Balkan in Belgium. Cotton production increased from 23,000 tons in 1932 to 127,000 in 1939. The system of mandatory cultivation was introduced, forcing Congolese peasants to grow cotton, coffee, groundnuts, and other cash crops for export. The human rights violations, the war crimes, the crimes against humanity, the genocide, that was, has, and continued to be committed in the Congo and the larger southern part of Africa are documented and well-known, the United States. On August 2, 1939, the eve of World War II, Albert Einstein wrote a letter to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, informing him that, quote, it may be possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements could be generated. This new phenomenon, Einstein informed the president, would quote, also lead to the construction of bombs and it is conceivable but much less certain, that the extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed. End of quote. The United States, Einstein continued, has only very poor ores of uranium in moderate quantities. There is some good ore in, in Canada and in the former Czechoslovakia while the most important source of uranium is the Belgian Congo. In view of this situation, Einstein advised, you may think it desirable to have some permanent contact maintained between the administration and the group of physicists working on chain reactions in America. End of quote. On October 19, 1939, Roosevelt wrote to Einstein, informing him that he had accepted his advice and that he had, quote, convened a board consisting of the head of the Bureau of Standards and a chosen representative of the Army and Navy to thoroughly investigate the possibilities of your suggestion regarding the element of uranium, end of quote. Two days later, on October 21, 1939, Lyman Briggs of the National Bureau of Standards and a convened an advisory committee on uranium to investigate the issues raised by Einstein's letter. This committee reported back to Roosevelt in November that uranium, quote, They provide a possible source of bombs with a destructiveness vastly greater than anything now known. Following the German occupation of Belgium on May 10, 1940, the Congo declared itself loyal to the Belgian government in exile in London. King Leopold III chose to remain in Belgium and was imprisoned by the German occupation Forces for the duration of the war. The Force Publique and the three Belgian forces fought on the Allied side in the war in the Pacific. In 1940, the African Metals Corp, a commercial arm of human- Union memory, shipped 1,200 tons of uranium ore to a warehouse on Staten Island in New York. This ore, an additional 3,000 tons stored above ground at the Shincolobu Mines in the Congo, was purchased for the use by the Manhattan Project. After September, 1942, An average of 400 tons of uranium oxide was shipped to the United States each month. In 1944, the Manhattan Project purchased 3.4 million pounds of uranium ore at a cost of $37.5 million, $561.3 million today. The Congo was the source of uranium. For the U.S. atomic bombs that were deployed against Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6, 1945 and August 9, 1945, respectively. The bombs murdered between 129 and 226,000 people, 90,000 to 146,000 in Hiroshima, and 39,000 to 80,000 in Nagasaki. Japan surrendered on August 15, 1945, six days after the Nagasaki bombing and the Soviet Union's declaration of war against Japan. Japan was occupied by the United States and Okinawa remains under partial occupation today. On July 22, 1946, the US passed the Atomic Energy Act. In 1947, it received an additional 1,440 tons of uranium from the Belgian Congo. It received all of the Congo's ore in 1948 and 1949. 2,792 tons in 1951, and 1,600 tons in 1953. Britain. During the war, Britain began a nuclear weapons project known as Two Alloys. This project was temporarily shut down and merged with the Manhattan Project in 1943. On August 10, 1945, the British government set up an atomic bomb committee to oversee the resumption of its atomic project. By the end of 1946, Britain had received 1,850 tons of ore from the Shinkanova mine in the Congo. An independent nuclear research group was established in the United Kingdom on June 8, 1947. An additional 1,400 tons was shipped to Britain in 1947 from the Belgian Congo. Its first bomb was detonated on October 3, 1952. Soviet Union. In 1942, Gregory Flangroth wrote a letter to Joseph Stalin urging him to start a full-scale nuclear program. The war delayed Stalin's plans. Berlin fell on May 2, 1945, and the Soviet Union accelerated its efforts to build an atomic bomb. It sought to capture information technology and technicians from Germany, the United States, and Britain. The United States removed 1,200 tons of uranium ore, the bulk of Germany's supply, from a salt mine main stress before it fell under Russian occupation. The German bomb was built on European sources of uranium not African sources. France, in 1945, France launched its atomic energy program. In 1948, the South African government launched its atomic energy program. In 1949, within months of the creation of Israel, Israeli scientists were invited to share the knowledge they and French and South African scientists had learned during their participation in the Manhattan Project. On July 23, 1952, and January 1, 1956, Egypt and Sudan became independent of British rule. In March 1954, France was defeated, at Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam. The Algerian revolution was launched on November 1, 1954, and Algeria won its independence eight years later. On April 7, 1956, Morocco won independence. Also in 1956, as part of its military alliance during the Suez Crisis, France agreed to secretly build the Daemonium nuclear reactor in Israel. France also entered into a nuclear agreement with Germany and Italy. In 1957, the French decided to build a nuclear testing facility in the Algerian Sahara. On September 22, 1958, Ghana became independent, and 10 other French colonies became independent in 1960. Ghana became independent, or at least moved up a notch in its relationship by 1967. There were 210 French nuclear tests from 1960 to 1995, 17 of them in the Algerian Sahara between 1960 and 1966, in the middle of the Algerian War. The early round of French tests were held on February 13, 1960, April 1, 1960, December 27, 1960, and April 25, 1961, in Algeria, near the the Mali border. France conducted 193 atomic tests in Polynesia, the world today. The worldwide production of uranium in 2019 was 53,656 tons. Kazakhstan, Canada, and Australia were the top three uranium producers respectively respectively, and together accounted for 68% of the world production. Other countries producing more than 1,000 tons per year, including Namibia, Nigeria, Russia, Uzbekistan, the United States, and China. Nearly all of the world's mined uranium is used to power nuclear power plants today. Task number three. Some thoughts on just and unjust war. Just and unjust peace. Africa is the birthplace of humanity and a cradle of civilization. The military history of Africa is one of the oldest military histories in the world, dating back to 3100 B.C. with the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt and the high school's invasion of 1440 B.C. That military history includes more than five millennia. Four, of human trafficking, so-called slave trade, enslavement and colonization, north and south of the Sahara. Africa also has one of the oldest peace and diplomatic histories. One of the oldest histories of struggle for a human and God-given life. Bob, are you there?
2: We seem to have lost um, Bob's sound uh, feed. Uh, for those of you that arrived uh, a little bit late we were having um, some technical difficulties with um, uh, the video feed from Bob Brown that's why you couldn't see him um, and um, I'm not sure if if he can hear us
1: why don't you let me go Jonah then until Bob comes back on
2: all right um, yeah go ahead john I, um, i'll I'll try to monitor if, if he's uh, reconnecting
1: uh, I'd, I'd just like to welcome everyone here on behalf of the Hiroshima Nagasaki Peace committee um, and so uh, Bob gave a really uh, <laughs> uh, quite quite a good overview of the situation with uh, the Belgian uranium uh, it was uh, the, the overwhelming majority of the uranium used in the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was from Congo. Some of it was from Saskatchewan, which was mined by the Dene uranium miners. Some came from, uh, from uh, New Mexico and Utah, mined by the uh, uh, Navajo uranium miners miners. Um, So, But the story is constantly the same. The primary victims of nuclear technology, both nuclear weapons and nuclear power, have been people of color, people of the global south, and indigenous people. So uh, Bob talked about uranium mining pretty well. Uh, If we talk about nuclear testing, Bob mentioned the uh, Algerian tests by the French. The French also tested at Muraroa in Tahiti. Uh, the United States tested their bombs in the Marshall Islands, in the Solomon Islands, in the Pacific, uh, creating, uh, uh, destroying entire islands, forcing entire communities to be permanently evacuated from their homelands. Uh, they 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 tested the, the Trinity bomb that was uh, that was used on. Uh, Uh, later used uh, Nagasaki, they tested it in the New Mexico desert, also on indigenous land. The Nevada test site was on Shoshone land, the Treaty of Ruby Ruby Valley. Uh, The French tested, uh, the British tested theirs in the Pacific as well. Uh, The Chinese tested on uh, indigenous land. The Soviets tested in Kazakhstan and, and uh, indigenous land. So over and over and over, it was people of color, people of the global south that were the principal victims. Uh, and Rosalie Bertel, who was a famous epidemiologist, she uh, was responsible for identifying the, the uh, chemi- chem- chemical contamination at Love Canal. And she spent her entire life looking at uh, the damage caused by nuclear technology and she wrote a book in the I want to say the 1990s it was called No Immediate Danger it's still available, highly recommended and uh, she estimated that uh, at that point, and this we're talking 30 years ago now she estimated 30 million people had died because of the bomb and again it was primarily uh, Although not exclusively uh, indigenous people and people of color of the global south, uh of course of course you had the downwinders in in uh, Nevada and Utah that uh suffered terribly and uh, and the and the, uh, and the damage continues the, the the radiation tailings from the uranium mining that took place in uh on Indian land by Indian miners. Navajo miners mined the majority of the uranium in the United States and left literally mountains of tailings. If you go out to Gallup, New Mexico, and you start driving, all of a sudden you see a range of mountains, but they're the oddest mountains you've ever seen. They're 500 feet high or more, and they're perfectly symmetrical. And, uh, and what they are is uranium tailings. And uh, so the dirt from these uranium tailings continues to this day to be blown by the wind and blown into the Navajo Reservation. So uh, the Navajo Reservation is a very large uh, reservation. I think maybe uh, about 50 to 75,000 people live there. Uh, but they have such a large number of children suffering from Down syndrome that they literally have a Down syndrome school and uh, many scientists believe that uh, the reason for this epide- epidemic of Down syndrome on Navajo territory is because of exposure from the bomb. So, uh, but I wanted to f- change the focus a little bit and I also want to give lots of time for people uh, to comment. So the topic was nuclear imperialism So I put together some quotes, and I put them in chronological order. And the reason I did this, these are the actual words of U.S. policymakers regarding nuclear weapons and the real purpose of nuclear weapons. So if you listen to the Pentagon propaganda, they'll say, well, it's about deterrence. We have them for deterrence. It's about mutually assured destruction nuclear weapons will never be used but i'm going to read four quotes here starting with george keenan in 1948 and this was the beginning of containment of the soviet union and it was uh, it was declassified many many years later it doesn't directly refer to nuclear weapons but that's the implication and this is the quote We have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. We cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment. Our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. To do so, we will have to dispense with all sentimentality and daydreamings. We should cease to talk about vague and unreal objections such as human rights, the raising up of living standards, and democratization. We're going to have to deal in straight power concepts. The less we are then hampered by idealistic slogans, the better. George Keenan, 1948. So in 1948. Uh, so in 1949, a year later, uh, Paul Nitzah, um, made a, a, a statement. Uh, it was, a, mm, okay, hold on so I can get it right. Uh, let me just read it. I want to say it's Directive 49. Uh, so our overall policy at the present time may be described as one designed to foster a world environment in which the American system can pr- survive and flourish. A large measure of sacrifice and discipline will be demanded of the American people. Uh, And then he talks about a military buildup, and he says, the execution of such a military buildup requires the U.S. have an affirmative program beyond the solely defensive one of countering the threat posed by the Soviet Union. In the event we use atomic weapons, either in retaliation or their prior use, uh, by the USSR, or because there is no alternative method by which we can attain our objectives, it is imperative that the strategic and tactical targets against which they are used be appropriate and the manner in which they are used be consistent with these objectives. The United States now has an atomic capability, including both numbers and deliverability, estimated to be adequate if effectively utilized. To deliver a serious blow against the war-making capacity of the USSR That was 1949 Uh, 1976, the Joint Chiefs of Staff said U.S. nuclear strategy maintains military strength Sufficient to provide a war-fighting capability To respond to a wide range of conflict In order to control escalation and terminate the war on terms acceptable to the US. 1978, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the most ambitious damage limiting strategy dictates a first strike capability against an enemy's strategic offensive forces which seeks to destroy as much of his megatonnage as possible before it can be brought into play. In other words, a first strike. An enemy's residual retaliation, assumed to be directed against urban industrial targets, would be blunted still further by a combination of active and passive defenses, including anti-submarine warfare, anti-ballistic missiles, and anti-bomber defenses, and civil defense. 1978, so we might say that, okay, well that was really a long time ago, and things have changed, it's not really that way anymore. But in 2019, two years ago, the Joint Chiefs of Staff published a document on their website, which was fortunately seen and preserved by the Federation of American Scientists. And this is what they said two years ago. The employment or threat of employment of nuclear weapons could have a significant influence on ground operations. Integration of nuclear weapons into a theater of operations requires the consideration of multiple variables. Using nuclear weapons could create conditions for decisive results and the restoration of strategic stability. Specifically, the use of a nuclear weapon will fundamentally change the scope of a battle and create conditions that affect how commanders will prevail in uh, combat. So, Uh, The message is very clear, starting in 1948 and going all the way until two years ago, and that is that the purpose of nuclear weapons is not mutually mutually assured destruction. It is not about deterrence. It's basically about uh, using nuclear weapons in order to coerce the rest of the world, primarily the global south, into maintaining the status quo. So so today, uh, it's not exactly that the U.S. consumes 40% of the world's resources and comprises 5.6% of the world's population. It's a little bit different, but it's not very much different. It's still basically that imbalance. And and today, as we're speaking here here tonight, the G7 is uh, meeting in, in Wales, and... Uh, the G7 essentially represents the wealthy nations of the world. And collectively, I don't know the exact amount, I don't know that anybody has it, but I would guess that the G7 nations probably consume on the order of 70% to 80% of the world's energy and the world's resources. Essentially, that's the way that it's been for the last 500 years Uh, it was uh, uh, hundreds of years of colonialism and then it was imperial colonialism and then we had a period of of decolonialism but uh, even in spite of uh, decolonialism where you had uh, nominal independence in the global south still The system is skewed so that essentially the global south plus uh, Russia are basically the energy basket of the world, the bread basket of the world, the the resource basket of the world. And this is in a time when all of us know we are facing uh, 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 enormous crises where we are still dealing and have not yet by any stretch, are not yet out of the woods with this uh, uh, pandemic that we're dealing with, which I believe is also a function of uh, the attack on Mother Earth. And I'm certain, and other scientists agree, that we're going to be seeing other other pandemics in the not too far future. So, uh, so we're, we're we're looking at that crisis. We're looking at the crisis of climate change, which is. Uh, the second existential crisis beyond nuclear weapons uh, we 're looking at resource depletion're we're look, we 're looking a petroleum uh, depletion uh, Bob alluded to the mining that 's going on in the Congo, which is you know required for all of the all of the technological fixes that are being discussed, how to deal with the climate change. But to do that, you need cobalt and you need lithium. And where do they come from? Uh, a whole lot of them come from Congo, which Bob talked about in detail. And, uh, to, and we're, when, when we look at the last uh, 20 or 25 years, as, as many as six million people have died in the Congo Uh, And this is a result of uh, military forces which to a great extent have been and were unleashed by the United States policies. So I wanted to touch on those issues, and I wanted to – I'm going to end now so because I I, I want us to have uh, a discussion and have plenty of time for a a discussion. Uh, I just wanted maybe a couple of stories. So Bob talked about June 12th, and he was up in New York, and you know, he was part of the office. But uh, I was here in Washington, D.C., uh, and, and our committee was involved in planning June 12th. Oh, We had a number of meetings. And uh, so one night in the spring of 82, there was a phone call to uh, my, my wife in my house, Louise Franklin Ramirez. I, I know that some of you on the, on the call here remember Louise. Jackie, I know you're on there. You remember Louise, and, and others remember the Louise. Well, we got a phone call one evening, and the phone caller says, uh, this is Reverend Herbert Daughtry from up in New York, and I was given your number. I wonder if it was Bob Brown that actually gave that, that number. I'll have to ask him when he comes back on. But uh, he said, I want, I want to come down to Washington, D.C. and talk with you about what's going on uh, in, in New York with the June 12th organizing. He said there, there's a, some racist activity that's going on, and we'd like to talk with, with the people in Washington, D.C., So the committee called the Washington Peace Center. Elise Fisher was director, and we had a meeting there, and Reverend Daughtry came down, and he told us the following story. So what had happened is that the the usual primarily white pacifist liberal groups were organizing the event but Reverend Daughtry and a number of particularly African American and also Chicano groups uh, were not satisfied with letting others organize that demanded that they be part of the organizing and part of the National Steering Committee. Uh, So some of the white liberal peace groups objected to it and broke off from the steering committee so it ended up that there were two steering committees, and one that was led by uh, Reverend Daughtry in the Progressive and Third World uh, People's Caucus, and then one that was led by the traditional white liberal groups. And, so, and then the irony is, is that the courts recognized Reverend Daughtry's coalition as having the permit. So Reverend Daughtry actually had the permit. And then finally, uh, a a truce was negotiated, the rally went off. But Washington, D.C. organized 30 buses, 29 by the Washington Peace Center, one by the Gray Panthers, and we organized the entire Washington, D.C. contingent under the banner of the Progressive and Third World People's Caucus, not under the June 12th Organizing Committee. So I, I think that I mean that kind of relates to the idea of um, of nuclear imperialism that it not only affects you know nuclear weapons nuclear power and you know U uh, S and uh, G seven strategy NATO strategy but it affects us in the movement. It's, this is a, a, a really strong example of racism in the movement. Uh, Ten years ago, fortunately, uh, Kevin Martin, who's the Director of Peace Action, uh, was responsible for bringing Reverend Daughtry up onto the stage at the United Nations, where he was able to address the entire group, so, so some of the racism back then was rectified. But, but even today the, the peace movement The anti-nuclear movement The anti-war movement uh, Has a problem Recognizing that people of color From the beginning Have not only been involved In the anti-nuclear movement And the anti-war movement But in many ways Have been in the forefront Of, of that movement uh, So I wanted, to, I wanted to Tell that story I think it's important uh, And uh, just to, add, to end on one point, so uh, our committee has been involved in from, for since 1981, this is the 40th anniversary of the Hiroshima Nagasaki Peace Committee, and we were part of the founding coalition for Abolition 2000 and, and many of the other big uh, anti-war groups. We were a, a member of the uh, Mobilization for Survival. and. One of the things that our committee, coming from Washington, D.C., coming from Chocolate City, has been that to uh, stress the importance of including peoples of color in, in the anti-nuclear movement because for many, many years it was the United States uh, anti-nuclear movement that really dominated the global anti-nuclear movement. And that has gradually changed, but it's still when it comes to having international activities and so on, it still is the case that uh, the, the anti-nuclear movement is dominated by the global north, and a lot of times the global south is unrepresentative, and part of that has to do with access to resources. So that's something that we've been agitating against uh, for many years. So, uh, Jonah, with that, I'd like to just... Uh, you know, stop talking and and open the floor to a, a discussion. So if you could coordinate that or maybe see if Bob is on, if you'd like to conclude his remarks.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen that um, that Bob uh, signed back on. Uh, I'm not seeing his um, okay. number. Okay. Well,
1: then, I, uh, so if people, Jonah, can you tell people how to go down and to go to to reactions and maybe raise their hand, and then you can call on them or call on certain individuals if you'd like to?
2: Yeah, if, um, if you'd like to speak, um, uh, go to the reactions function, and um, uh, there's uh, a square that says raise hand. We, we could find you that way. Um, and unmute yourself when you uh, uh, want to speak um or if uh ultimately you can just write a question in the chat section and um i'll um I'll monitor what what's going on in the chat
1: okay, do we have any hands yet so while we're waiting for hands, and please put your hands up because I'm not going to talk too long here, so Uh, uh, Bob mentioned that June uh, 12th is the anniversary Of the largest anti-nuclear protest in history But it's also uh, the anniversary of the initial uh, effort By Leo Zillard uh, and uh, his co-scientists To alert the U.S. government To the threat that the Nazis might develop a bomb So it was on June 12th that Leo Szilard and, uh, and uh, Wigner um, drove to Long Island to Albert Einstein's house. And what, what, what the letter said was that uh, in Europe, discoveries had been made that indicated that uranium might be a fissile material and might produce more neutrons than uh, it was bombarded with. And that implied the possibility of a chain reaction. And that implied the possibility of an uncontrolled chain reaction or a nuclear weapon. So they went to Einstein. Einstein was very skeptical, but he agreed to send the letter to Roosevelt. Roosevelt had responded quickly and that was the beginning, the embryo of the Manhattan Project. But, uh, Einstein said later when he found that the Germans were not going to uh, develop the bomb, he said, I re- this. I regret this more than anything in my life. He said, I would not have lifted one little finger to uh, help uh, develop the atomic bomb had I known that the Nazis would not develop the bomb. So this is also the anniversary of the very beginning of the atomic bomb project. So... Well, I'm really hoping we get some hands. There is at least one hand up, Jonah.
2: Yeah, okay, so uh James um, go, ahead. Vince, yeah, go ahead.
6: Jim. Jim, hi. Right, I, I was just uh I was as John and um what was his name? Bob. I actually came in a little late, but um as you were talking, uh, especially about the uh the cotin, this is a mineral in the Congo. Uh, it, I guess, contains uh, rare earth elements that we need for our electronic devices. Uh, I remember the uh, the short animated movie called The Story of Stuff that uh, many of us have probably seen. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, you can search that, The Story of Stuff, and watch it online. It's uh, chock full of a lot of uh, relevant inter- information. Uh it's mainly uh concerned about the environment, I would say, but it touches on the military industrial complex. But the point I wanted to raise was uh in that little uh twenty minute uh video, twenty-five minute maybe it is, um, uh the announcer who is actually uh now with Greenpeace, uh or the the narrator, um Annie Leonard um, she 's with Greenpeace now uh she mentions that um, it's cur- it was curious that uh this idea of consumption um, is with us now, and uh you know in our grandparents' day uh thrift and uh, conservation were prized um, and uh she said that uh this didn't actually uh, happen by accident that there was an economist. I believe his name is Victor LeBeau. Um, he put forth this uh I guess policy I think it was in the 50s and that was uh early 50s maybe it maybe it was a little earlier. Um I I think it was under Eisenhower. Anyway, he uh he articulated an economic policy where uh can't remember how it goes, but it's in the movie and you can uh, in the, the little uh, uh animated thing um it's something about uh due to our um, our high status uh our uh, yeah uh we must use up and consume uh things at an ever increasing rate um, and uh so th- that's where apparently this idea of continually growing the GDP and uh, continually consuming things came from. And uh, that is also a a form of uh, imperialism. I think uh, we would term it economic imperialism. So uh, we in the North are uh, under this idea that uh, we have to constantly grow our economy. We have to constantly consume things. And uh we've run out, I guess of well we maybe we never had the the resources to sustain that, so we go to the Congo um we were going um during the seventies to the mid east to get our oil to sustain it so uh it just um, the comments tonight and uh, remembering that story of stuff video um kind of tied some things together for me, so uh,
2: yeah, thank. Thanks you know, we're
6: We're, we're uh, living unsustainably. And I guess a point I wanted to make was that uh, the occurrence in the early 50s I don't think is accidental either. Uh, it's because the U.S. had hegemony uh, militarily. And um, so we were able to, you know, support this um, because of our power and uh, probably fear of retribution. Uh, and we were able to start establishing this uh, economic uh, hegemony. and, okay, and we're going to
2: go on to some more questions. Thanks for your comments, Jim. Um, let's see. There was a hand up. Um, uh, now I'm not seeing it anymore. Um, let's see. uh, is, uh Jackie Cabasso... Uh, uh, would you like to um, give any comments or questions? You'll have to unmute.
4: Uh. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm. I'm really sorry that Bob's presentation was cut off, and I'm. I was wondering if we might be able to get the text from him, since he seemed to have been reading from a prepared text. I'll, um, I'll send it to you, Jackie. Okay, but what I w- actually was trying to figure out whether I was going to try to put this in the chat or to talk about it, is that um, I think that it's quite it's it's quite clear to me that um, we're never going to win on nuclear abolition as a single issue. That's been true for a long time. As, as powerful as the movement was in the 80s, we still are here where we are today. And that wasn't a single-issue movement. That's kind of been hidden... Um, over time. And so there is a very important movement now, I believe, that has the potential to bring all the issues together um, to build the political power we actually need to make fundamental change. And that's the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And um, if you will indulge me in it, let me talk about how it relates to nuclear weapons specifically. So people probably know that Uh, In 1967, April 4th, uh, exactly one year before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King said in a speech called Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence, I'm convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society the machines and computers profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people the giant triplets of racism extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered so the poor people's campaign has picked up dr king's unfinished work weaving together what they refer to as the interlocking injustices systemic racism systemic poverty environmental devastation militarism and the war economy and the distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism in one moral fusion campaign. And the Poor People's Campaign moral budget calls for cutting U.S. military spending by half, $350 billion, including by closing 60% of U.S. foreign military bases, ending wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, elsewhere, and dismantling and eliminating nuclear weapons. Um, Poor People's Campaign has active state-based organizations in 45 states being supported by an extraordinary range of constituencies, including labor unions, faith organizations, racial justice, anti-poverty, environmental and peace groups, is building political power. And the latest example of that was the introduction uh, about a week and a half ago of a congressional resolution. HRes 438 third reconstruction fully addressing poverty and low wages from the bottom up which comprehensively encompasses these uh interlo- these five interlocking injustices it's a 19 page resolution and it's really a template for a revolution of values i recommend it to people but let me say what it says about militarism um Experts have identified up to $350 billion in defense spending cuts that would both save resources and keep the country safe and secure. We must now heal the nation by demilitarizing U.S. foreign policy, borders, and policing, including by cutting military spending by at least 10%, ending forever wars, repealing existing authorizations of use of military force, restoring Congress's war powers, pursuing diplomacy over war moving toward nuclear disarmament and curtailing the use of broad economic sanctions that create mass suffering, repealing programs that provide military equipment and training uh, to domestic law enforcement agencies and redirecting these resources to fully address systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, and militarism. So in my opinion, a revolution of values is not an option. Uh, It's an imperative. And we have this very real, viable movement now that we should in my opinion peace and and nuclear disarmament advocates should fully throw our support behind and sometimes that means working on something other than nuclear weapons i found myself at demonstrations supporting low-wage mcdonald workers here in oakland who were being denied ppe and sick pay during the height of the pandemic and I, i i was asked to speak and i said i feel exactly the same way i do being here today is when I'm protesting at the Livermore Nuclear Weapons Laboratory because we're fighting the same forces with the same vision of a, a different kind of a future. So um, I encourage people to find out more about the Poor People's Campaign. I'll put some links in the chat um, to consider joining your state organizations and also particularly to um, spread the word about and tune in on June 21st for a massive digital Poor People and Low Wage Workers Assembly. Um, where this um legislation is going to be lifted up um on Monday of this week, there were fifty press conferences at congressional offices in uh thirty six states, so that shows some indication of the power that this movement has to to really be organizing and pulling people together so that's where I think we should be putting our energy now in a nutshell,
2: Jackie.
1: Yeah, so Bob, uh, Jonah, if I can just interject. Uh, so Jackie and I have worked together many years, and and in fact, Jackie joined me when I was presenting in Berkeley, maybe what seven, eight years ago. Jackie. Yep. Yeah, uh, it was it was in inter- an interesting talk, and and I really appreciate all that she's done over the years. She she really was in the room when the abolition 2000 movement was formed, and. I often run into her in Japan when, I, on the occasional occasion when when, when I get there. So I really appreciate your uh, giving us all this valuable information, Jackie, and taking the time. Sure.
4: Anna. And let me also mention that Abiligant 2000 is still going. It's having its annual general meeting on the, the 19th of June. And um, I put a link in the chat. Anybody who is interested is very welcome to join. We are trying to look at new strategies for nuclear abolition, taking into account all of these different interconnected injustices. And we're posing the the question for our strategy session is how do we move from a dysfunctional world to a world without nuclear weapons? So I invite people to check that out to pick up the link. Thank you.
1: <laughs> so, so Jonah, just so you know, Bob is back on, but Walter had his hand up. So maybe if you could recognize Walter, and then we can go back and see if Bob would, can finish his presentation
2: for us. Yeah, okay. Walter, go ahead. Um, we're recognizing him.
7: Thank you. Um, I'm really glad that you have this event, and I'd like your title, that you include the term imperialism or empire. Um, I'm a really old activist now, and I got my start because I got stationed on Okinawa when I was young and stupid. And what I learned on Okinawa was one thing among others, which was that the U.S. really is an empire, an imperial power. And I saw it in action on Okinawa. Um, I wanna make this point. I think that building a movement piece by piece is important. What we saw the last couple of years of young people in particular is wonderful. But I think we've got to recognize the reason that the empire has been able, the U.S. empire, among others, has been able to hold on to power for so long. Not only racism and its world and all of that, but it's and In other words, if you can fool most of the people in order to not realize that they're part of an impressive empire, they'll go on you know protecting themselves and, and their income and so on so I'm sorry about that that's not coming from me um that the primary way in which propaganda keeps control of people is yes through racism and fear but it's if you can't talk about the fact that the u.s in fact is an empire political military economic and so on then you're not going to be able to win over large numbers of people because they just don't understand it. The propaganda has blocked them from seeing that. So I just want to emphasize that. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Walter. Um, Bob, uh, we missed you. Um, uh, Do you have anything else to say? Um, no, No, I will just listen.
3: I'm sure I ran over time and my phone ran out of battery. Oh, okay.
2: Well, well so back. um but I will just listen okay
3: to the dialogue and the discussion from this point forward.
2: Great. Um Max Obashevsky, um uh you wrote a um uh a comment in the chat. Would you like to just um um say say it uh so we can all
0: listen to you uh, uh sure uh, what, i I was a Peace Corps volunteer in africa seventy seven through eighty one and uh I'll just speak about Botswana uh it was taboo if you were gay there, there was no you know, it was no nothing was open, and one of the peace Corps volunteers from Boston. He would go to Johannesburg uh, to socialize, and he would later die from AIDS in the United States. Uh, when I was uh, on a human rights internship in New York City in '82 and '83, I was signing petitions because there's a strange uh, gay disease. AIDS, was, the, you know, the HIV AIDS wasn't known until later, and I. Uh, know that there was French nuclear testing, above-ground nuclear testing taking place in Africa. So what is the possibility that the nuclear testing somehow lowered the immune systems to cause uh, AIDS to jump from an animal to people in the village? The, The other side of the coin that I put in there is when I was growing up in Erie, Pennsylvania, the girls were taking goiter pills, and my understanding of why they were taking goiter pills is because of above-ground testing that was taking place in Nevada, and the radioactive wind would take take that wind into Erie, Buffalo, and uh, Rochester, et cetera. And I'm assuming that the radioactive uh, radioactivity affected people's immune systems. So I'm throwing those out there. If anybody wants to try to, to you know, this, it's all suppositions. I don't know. Uh, it's just that I wonder about this. So those are my questions. If anybody wants to tackle them, thank you.
1: Um, so, Max, this is John here. And uh, so I will tackle it. So first of all, let let me say that atmospheric testing, particularly in the northern hemisphere, uh, undoubtedly affected people's immune systems. I think there's no doubt about that. So your memory of the girls and possibly boys taking thyroid uh, pills, it would have been iodine they were taking. And uh, the reason for that was that uh, the the atmospheric testing was going on uh, in uh, the Nevada test site and tremendous, tremendous amounts of radioactive fallout. The dirt, the vaporized dirt, vaporized rock was falling out on uh, St. George, Utah, and Cedar City, Utah, which is where the primary victims were. But much of that radiation was carried all the way across the United States. So there would be patches that of uh, fallout that would rain out and in in minnesota and in wisconsin and in michigan and a lot of the really bad fallout from rainstorms summer thunderstorms were in western pennsylvania and particularly uh uh eastern pennsyl western pennsylvania and western new york uh and the right around the rochester area in particular so one of the stories uh, there's two two versions of it. Uh, uh, it had to do with Eastman Kodak Company. And uh, what happened is, is that virtually all of Eastman Kodak's film stock was ruined because of radioactivity. And the U.S. government compensated uh, Kodak very, very quietly because they did not want this to be known. So the two versions that I've heard, one is that... Uh, The uh, film stock was made, the starch that was used came from corn, and the corn was radioactive and giving off radioactive particles, and that was causing the film to be ruined. The other story is that there was a large fallout pattern over uh, Rochester, New York, that impacted on, on Kodak but we, whichever of those two stories is true, it's incontrovertible that virtually the entire Kodak film stock was ruined and, um, and uh, that the US government quietly, and we didn't find out about this until many many years later, quietly uh, paid to, to compensate Kodak. Um, If it's all right, Jonah, while I'm thinking about this, because the topic is a long topic, and one of the points I wanted to make, and uh, actually, Bob, I'm hoping you can comment on this, because I remember when June 12th happened, that was simultaneous with the Israeli destruction of Beirut and some of the older activists. Walter, you'll remember that, and I, I think some of the others We'll remember that as well, that literally the entire of downtown Beirut, Lebanon, had been destroyed by Israeli warplanes. And this was going on at exactly the same time we were gathering in New York. And the organizers of the event instructed the speakers that they were not to mention the Israeli destruction of Beirut because that would be a distraction from the message. So that, that's just another uh, example of how imperialism in general also can affect our, our movement. So Bob, uh, do John, you have
0: any memory of that? John, John, could I make one comment? Yeah, Max. Uh, as I said, I was in Botswana, and for anyone that doesn't know uh, the geography, uh, Botswana is just north of uh, South Africa, and if you were flying into Botswana, you have to go into Joburg first and then go to Botswana. But while I was there, I believe it was 1980, that's when South Africa tested its its uh, nuclear weapon with the help of the Israelis and, and the Germans, as I understand it. I just wanted to now, Well, that. well
1: uh, yes, and, that, and that's correct, Max. I, 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 I should have mentioned that. Uh, so one of the issues... When we talk about the fraud from the French testing, remember the French testing was taking place in the Algerian desert. So that was thousands of miles north of where uh, AIDS developed. So it's not clear that there's a connection there. But uh, there's definitely a connection between the South African bomb and the testing that took place. I want to say it was either 1970 or 9 or 1980. There were three tests that a a consensus of scientists uh, determined were uh, nuclear tests. They were low-orbit satellite tests. And uh, it's almost certain that those were South African tests, but much of the technology came from the Israelis, because obviously the Israelis could not do their own testing, so this was a way for the Israelis to, to test their device. Another thing that I think most people don't understand is uh, we, Bob mentioned that the French built the Damona Reactor and were to a great extent responsible, not exclusively, but to a great extent responsible for the Israeli program. But what's not well understood is that from the beginning, Israeli scientists were working shoulder to shoulder in the French labs and also at the French test site in Algeria so uh, from my understanding the Israelis and the French were full partners in the French testing so uh, that, that's I, uh, I'm going to put some further reading resources in the chat room so, so people can go and, and, and check them out I, I'll put in some URLs and I'm also going to make a, a copy of the chat log, so we'll have that as a permanent record. So if anybody wants me to send them uh, a text copy of the chat log with, all, with everything that's in it, uh, to make certain, I want you to put your email address in the chat log and then I'll get it out to everybody within the next uh, two or three days.
3: And you hear me, John? Yes, Bob. I heard three issues currently up for discussion right now. One, the question of nuclear testing and relationship states. I think it's a legitimate question. I don't have an answer for it. I don't know. But I think that we must we must accept if atom bomb, if if, if uranium and whatnot can be used for atomic medicine, then just by the nature of dialectics, it can be used for that. I think that there is an obligation for the anti-nuke movement to scientifically research and come to understand the positive and the negative impact of uranium historically, and currently. It is simply not enough to talk about the impact on the Japanese survivors and then neglect the impact upon the Korean community that was in Japan, who only got access to medical care and other stuff, I think, in 2016. I'm not sure if the Budokomen community the, the untouchable cast, who were the blood workers, the, the waste workers, you know, the, the the animal workers. I'm not sure if they have gotten recognition of the traumas and, and the situation that they face, and the possible research and and the possible assistance. So I think it is I think it is correct to ask the question: What if any impact did this Bomb this weapons industry have on gay LBG people, LBGT people. I, I, I would not pretend to know. I will not pretend to be unconcerned. There needs to be a discussion. There needs to be research. There needs to come to some understanding on that issue. I think. I have a problem with the single issue focus. I'm, con- I'm convinced that the single issue discussion with respect to movement is the co like operation against our movement, imposed at the very minimum by the funding sources, if not worse. I can understand that people want to focus on one issue. You know, to 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 be clear, to be not, I, I I don't have no problem with people focusing on one issue, but we will never be free. We will never be free, focusing on one issue. Organizations and individuals can focus on in in one issue, but the masses of the people who are impacted by all of these issues cannot. So to tell me poverty, to tell me this, to tell me that, to exclude, I can't deal with it. I can understand it, but it ain't for me. With respect to some of the other issues that are raised, the economic movement, the peace movement, the solidarity movement, the civil rights movement, all these other movements, We've been used. Somebody determines the agenda for us. Let's talk about Israel. In April 15, 1967, Stokely Carl Michael spoke at the peace movement at the United Nations. The forces who were in control of it had two problems. One, he marched through the streets from Harlem to the UN with the radical element of the white youth of that time and, and maybe some of the Harlem, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how multiracial, the contingent that he led. And the pacifist forces and the other forces had problems because he said, hell no, we ain't going victory to the Viet Cong. And he was never invited back to speak to the peace movement, the disarmament movement again. It was compounded because that was April 15th, and by July 7th, the Israeli war. when the Suddenham Valley Coordinating Committee came out in support of the Palestinian struggle and against Zionism, and be clear, against Zionism and against Israel, we were never invited back to any of those circles again. And I can document it. And I can name the names of the people who didn't Re-invite us. They had a problem with the question of the Palestinian question. In 1982, I was invited to work with the anti-Nuke movement. And honestly, many of them thought that I would oppose Stoke Michael, who I was working with. And many of them had problems with my perspective, including Zionism. People ignore whatever contributions we made to the movement, to the demo, and that's okay, because we don't need them. We have existed on the margins. We've made our contribution. We have existed on the margins of that movement because we refuse to accept their definitions and their control. We continue our work. But yes, Zionism is is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. We can talk about everybody else's role in the energy movement, but we can't talk about Israel's. And I won't go further because I'll make the mistake of saying some things I shouldn't say. You know, about the scientists and about the origins of the movement. Zionism controls the movement. And I don't say it in an anti Semitic way. It's okay to be a pacifist, to be anti every war, every struggle, but you can't criticize Israel. And we can never, we'll never be free until we criticize everyone. Then wrong? Black, white, Muslim, Jewish. That is the problem even with respect this conversation tonight. You don't know how many forces in the peace movement, the solidarity movement, the anti-nuke movement I've known, I've met since 1965, locally, nationally. Some of them I still have. I can at least call them. I'm going to telephone and cuss about. I can't say I have a relationship with them. I know they don't want one with me, and I don't think I want one with them. But you are right. There's a coincidence of these incidents worldwide. If we just take, and I'll stop, if we just take a list, the varying incidents and whatnot worldwide and you just mentioned a couple of them and we see how close they are to each other in terms of time and we ask the question do they have are they just spontaneous and independent actions I don't want to go to conspiracy theory but I think the question you ask somebody needs to answer And I will ask the people who have the question, who have the answer, with respect to at least the June 12th demonstration, I asked Leslie Kagan and Matt Meyer to answer the question. Matt told me he might be on the line. Leslie was invited. I don't say it negatively. I respect them. I still try to have conversations with them, but I want answers, and I will get answers. so your question is correct. I think they should answer it,
1: Johnny, you got on mute
2: yeah, uh Bob, thanks a lot. um I think we're getting to the uh close of this this event um and uh, if anybody has one one more thing they want to um, speak up about, uh, do it now. Uh, otherwise, um, I want to uh, mention the event next month, uh, July the 16th. Uh, you'll you'll be hearing some more about that soon. Uh, we're going to have an event that marks the 40th anniversary of the Hiroshima Nagasaki Peace Committee. Um, And that date in July also happens to be the anniversary of the um, Trinity test in New Mexico. Um, So stay tuned for that. Um, And thank you all for uh, participating in the meeting tonight. And um, uh, John, do you have anything else uh, to, uh, to close out with?
8: Uh, John, yeah. would it be okay if I said something? Dot, uh, do a thing here. Yeah, uh, go
1: ahead, yeah, dot. That, that's fine. We we have another fifteen minutes. Ten, fifteen minutes.
8: Yeah, I I was on um, unable to uh, to have voice earlier. So, so anyway, um, I just realized that I I was almost a Hibakusha because I was born in Vietnam and uh, lived in Vietnam uh, during the uh, U.S. war there. And uh, Vietnam was threatened by uh, by the U.S. Uh, with uh, nuclear weapons, not not once, but at least twice, maybe even three times. And uh, so, uh, I guess I managed to uh, not be hit, and and a lot of the Vietnamese too. But this is um, this is particularly sad because uh, during. Uh, World War II, the uh, Ho Chi Minh and his uh, band of rebels uh, were fighting the Japanese and were helping the U.S. Uh, Air Force and um, and Army, and so we were allies. And then uh, a few years later, oh, the uh, U.S. sided with the French uh, colonialists, and then then uh, Vice President Nixon wanted to uh, offer. Uh, U.S. nuclear bombs to help the French in the reconquest of their colony in Vietnam. That's, that's very, very sad. So in that sense, we haven't learned anything in, in the U.S. We're still trying to use nuclear weapons to um, force our will on other countries. But there is a, another side of the story. Uh, the second part that Nixon also almost got away with with. Uh, using a nuclear bomb in Vietnam. Well, he was actually stopped by the anti-war movement that uh, caused such an outcry uh, over his uh, expan- expansion of the war that uh, he figured he, he couldn't get away with
5: his,
8: uh, he couldn't get away with his uh, madman I'm theory.
5: So
8: in that sense, we we could have learned the lesson that the people, when they speak loud enough, when they're informed enough, could make a difference. So those are my comments.
1: Uh, Dot. I'd like to really thank you for that, because that, I, I, I commented in the comment that I agreed with Bob when he suggested we just scratched the surface. The, the topic of nuclear imperialism is so huge and so broad uh, that you raised the issue of nuclear threats. Uh, and, and you talked about uh, uh, Vietnam and the threats to use nuclear weapons And uh, how the movement, according to Nixon himself in his memoirs you know, He was the one that realized that he could not, he could not use nuclear weapons And he was going to have to end the war Because of the uh, hundreds of thousands of people outside the White House But that that wasn't the only threat. So one of the things I've done in the chat again is I just very quickly went and uh, copied uh, a list of nuclear threats. And this list, is I, I think, is the best one. I know that Daniel Ellsberg made a list and Mishukaku, but this list was compiled by Arjun Makajani, who was one of the founders of the... Hiroshima Nagasaki Peace Committee. So it's a PDF, but when I send everybody the chat, I'll go look at that and the list of threats. It's a very long list. Uh, and, just, and just to bring this conversation to a close, so those of us who are of my age or older, Dot, Walter, possibly Jackie, Bob, You know, we remember, we know what the names Komoi and Matsu mean. The average person would not have any idea if you said Komoi and Matsu, but Komoi and Matsu back in 19, I want to say 19, late 1950s, were two islands off the coast of Taiwan, and uh, the United States almost went to war, nuclear war, over those two islands. It was an overt threat, one of about 25 or 30 of virtually all of the threats that nuclear threats that were made were made by the United States. And virtually all of the threats that were made were made against third world countries that didn't have nuclear weapons. So uh, it's just another example of nuclear imperialism and how the United States depends on its nuclear arsenal to get what it wants in the world. So, so I just like to end. Mao Zedong said he called nuclear weapons uh, a paper tiger for China, and he was referring to the fact that there are you know billions of people living in China and that it, uh, nuclear weapons could not you know ba- basically kill all the people in China. But I would say. Uh, He was right that nuclear weapons really are a nuclear uh, uh, a a paper tiger and that uh, the United States uses nuclear weapons in order to freeze the status quo, to maintain the disparity in the world, and to get its own way. So I would say the people of the world, you know, like Bob Marley said, have no fear of atomic energy because none of them can stop the time. So with that in mind, I guess that would be my last word, and I guess I'll throw it back to Jonah.
0: Uh, John, could Max say one final sentence to add on to what Dot told us? Jonah? Yeah. Yes, yeah, Max, go
1: ahead. Uh, go ahead.
0: Absolutely. I, I have a suspicion that some people on this call don't know this, but you have to remember uh, we all know about Ho Chi Minh trying to work with the United States, but what happened was, that the United States actually armed the Japanese soldiers to control vietnam until until the French could come back and take it over
8: well max I didn't know that thanks for thanks for informing me
2: uh it, yeah me too I, um uh and like you said that we we just scratched the surface tonight there's so many. Facets to this discussion, um, so we'll have to continue it in different ways. Um, uh, just, just the the, um, the nature of um, different peace groups and anti-war groups getting co-opted by the um, the foundations that fund uh, places like that, um, with the condition that they don't bring up. Um, Issues having to do with empire and imperialism there, there's there's a lot of material on the internet about that um, That could take up a whole evening, too So there's there's quite a lot that's internet interconnected and I agree with Bob um, Saying that uh, we can't um, uh, really um, Just restrict everything to one issue uh, All these things have some kind of interconnection. I I feel that that's really the nature of it, and seeing how these things are interconnected um I think can unravel some of the uh difficulty in getting 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 some movement um, uh, and some momentum on this um, so I think we're we're pretty much out of time, and um thanks again for everybody that uh Uh, that was here uh, to participate in this discussion. And um, um, stay tuned for um, uh, more information about uh, upcoming events. Thank you, Jonah. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.
4: Goodbye. So vast, so great, the
3: African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony,
4: the earth supports our conscious effort for sustaining humanity, human beings
9: Passion for life, erasing away all the strife. Telling our tales with verbal mail, putting honey on the blade. Creating language to persuade. Share who we've always been. Always a blessing, never a sin. We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. And always walk tall. Because we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls Everyone can wear, everyone can share We can't live in despair, so we shine everywhere On and on On and on in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes, hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger, how long can this go on, when will the life I see, I know I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah. Less last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. my journey, yeah. yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, hello
5: Reno,
9: a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia More pure, more alive. Where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength. A place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods. Where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland and Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin, turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. palerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains in not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul. Did not shackle the will of my freedom Did not tarnish the glow of my gold And all the palerinos in Africa, in Europe, and in North and South America Cannot destroy the majesty of my people The love of my people Shining like the sun Everywhere we go Everywhere we go When the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been here And made it through my journey, yeah And made it through my journey, yeah Yeah, 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 yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah
10: You are listening to a special edition of Africa on the Moon. The theme was Nuclear Imperialism, Racism, Imperialism, and Colonialism. This program was taken and recorded on the 12th of June, 2021. This webinar was under the banner of Pan-African Roots and the Nakamashima-Nakasaki Peace Committee. As Robin is in commemoration of the 39th anniversary of the 1982 March and Rally on the UN Plaza to Central Park for peace, justice, nuclear disarmament, and human needs. Your special guests were Dr. Bob Brown and John Steinbeck. If you'd like to have a copy of this particular webinar, please go and visit and check out the website of the All African People of GC. by going to the link, www.a-aprp-gc.org, or contact Brother John John Stanback, and they can help you to find a copy of the webinar that was recorded for this program. Remember, Africa on the Moon can be listened to every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. We look forward to seeing everyone tomorrow. And let's remember that there must be a struggle, an organized struggle, to end nuclear imperialism, racism, imperialism, and colonialism. We thank you for listening and supporting this program. This has been Africa on the Moon.